This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now, it's time to decentralize. All right, if you're just joining us, we'll get things started. Welcome to TGIF DCT here on Clubhouse. You've landed in the Decentralized Trials Club and every Friday, we gather here from 12 to 1 Eastern, 9 to 10 Pacific, to spend some time having conversations on different opportunities and challenges related to decentralized clinical trials. I'm your co-host, Craig Lipset, joined by my friend, Amir Kalali. Hello, Amir. Hi there. Very good. And our topics that we cover each week here on TGIFDCT are brought to us by you, the listeners. So if you have an idea in, on your mind for a topic that we should be talking more about or exploring, maybe you're an expert in it, maybe you're just a curious bystander, let us know. Drop a line to Amir Kalali or myself. And if you'd like to co-host on that topic, definitely let us know. Each week, the topics range from, uh, from considerations around technology and interoperability through to patient uh, topics related to experience and preference and diversity uh, through to next generation collaborations, whether around retail and opportunities for participation from physicians' offices, from retail clinics or otherwise. I'm really looking forward to today's conversation, though, because this is a topic that, uh, as usual, we shared on LinkedIn and Twitter uh, before today, and it seemed to get a lot of shares, a lot of interest on this. Today, we'll be talking about pediatrics and decentralized trials, kids and DCTs. Amir Kalali, do you have any uh, bias or perspective on this one before we get things going? Well, one, do, one thing I do know is pediatricians tend to be some of the nicest physicians I know. So I'm uh, looking forward to hearing the perspective from our resident pediatrician and who's been doing clinical trials and once we do intros. And uh, no, I think it's a really important topic. I've always felt that we need to give more attention to this so uh, we can get going by some intros maybe, Craig. Sounds like a fine place to start. Amir Lahav, welcome. Amir is an old friend of mine from my Pfizer days where he was a a leader in digital clinical trials and rare diseases. Amir, uh, would you like to come off mute? Introduce yourself, the rest of your activities and what you're working on today. Sure, thank you, Craig. Uh, listening to your calming voice on Friday always uh, makes me happy. Uh, <laughs> I, um, Amir Lahav, uh, really excited about this opportunity. Um, I. Uh, Started at Harvard Medical School as a professor of pediatrics and did a lot of research uh, on um, uh, kids of different age, ranging from very premature babies, uh, um, born at 24, 25 weeks gestation to um, uh, 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 infants, toddlers, and on a little bit uh, teenagers. Um, I did um, join Pfizer, as you mentioned, uh, working a lot on the digital innovation, the remote digital monitoring, and everything that we can do uh, these days to uh, minimize uh, clinic visits to the minimum uh, necessary or the minimum possible. So uh, uh, this is really an area that I, I care a lot about because uh, as we uh, transition, all over the world to decentralized trials uh, and trying to 
uh, make things better, provided more flexibility to patients. Uh, I think that sometimes we tend to forget that uh, pediatric trials uh, are very different. It's a different ball game, it's a different animal. Uh, a lot of pharma companies are sometimes find themselves forced to do a pediatric trial because the regulatory authorities uh, um, ask them to. Um, and uh, I'm not sure that we always give our best attention uh, to this uh, um, you know, population of children. Um, and um, I think that today I would love to hear uh, thoughts from the audience and as well as my co-host here today, uh, Han Fan, uh, about what can we do better, how we can do it better, what are the challenges, what are the opportunities to innovate and improve. So thank you for the opportunity, Craig and Amir. Great setup, Amir. And as you're hinting at, we'll follow our usual format today. We're going to spend a little time here with Amir and Han, uh, just hearing a little bit from them. And then at about halfway uh, through today's hour, we'll open up the floor and want to hear from all of you, your questions, your uh, ideas and perspectives on today's topic. Um, Amir, I also want to give a shout out that I uh, noticed on your LinkedIn profile, you are an advisor to two, not just one, but two of our members uh, in the Decentralized Trials Research Alliance, uh, working with Castor and with CureBase. One of these days, we'll get you past the letter C on the uh, DTRA roster, but that's great to see. Uh, uh, I'm really uh, thrilled to also welcome a new friend to TGIF-DCT, Han Fan, a pediatrician, um, and uh, well, Han, I'm not going to do your background justice. Would you mind coming off of, you, off of mute? Introduce yourself for our audience. Yes, thank you for the introduction. Um, this is my first time to Clubhouse, and um, so far it's been wonderful. It reminds me of uh, NPR that my dad used to listen to. <laughs> Um, and I still listen to it. It's just the pace and the tone and the audience is wonderful. Um, so my background is pediatric neurology and sleep medicine. And um, I am um, an independent clinical research coordinator. I mean, no, I'm sorry, a principal investigator at a um, independent research unit that focuses in rare diseases, particularly um, in pediatric rare diseases. Um, I got to know Amir from um, his time from Pfizer, where he was working on the technology as outcome measures for um, Duchenne muscular dystrophy study, and we've been great friends. Um, so I, I value his opinions and his experience and skills that is phenomenal. Um, so I have been a clinical research investigator um, for over 10 years. I started out at Emory. Um, and was there for about 10 years and um, decided that um, to, to open a independent clinical research site. Um, with that experience, both in academic and private institutions um, and with in, in the setting of the ongoing pandemic, um, I'm, I'm really excited to hear and to listen in and hopefully to participate in some of the um, output and input for the clinical trials, decentralizations idea of clinical trials. Um, as you can imagine, the pandemic have prevented a number of study activities, predominantly the travel to clinical sites and important assessments and outcome measures that ultimately may affect clinical trials. Um, my other hat that I wear is that I am um, an FDA um, consultant where they call it the SGE special um, employment or some sort. But um, in any case, I'm on the pediatric advisory committee and we review a number of clinical trials as is pertinent to um, pediatric conditions and, and diagnosis. Um, so I'm, I'm, I have some background in that. And um, so I, I get to um, wear a couple hats on multiple sides on clinical trials. I get to evaluate and review data that's submitted to FDA, but at the same time, I'm also in the trenches conducting clinical trials. So this is 
this is a very unique opportunity for me to participate. And I want to thank you, Amir, for inviting me. And thank you, Greg, and everyone on the in the audience um, for listening in today. Thank you. So that, that was a fabulous um, introduction, I'm just curious before we get to that topic, I'm just wanted if you can spend a minute telling us what your experience has been being an independent uh, PI, you know, with the pandemic, how did you, you know, what happened to the, your business, you know, how did you survive? Just love to hear just a quick sort of overview of how you've done during the pandemic and how the patients you're dealing with, you know, what's been impacting them. Sure. Um, so we have not been significantly impacted by the pandemic at all. Um, and simply because a lot of our patients needing to come to our site for infusions and getting treatments and such. So those patients continue to come in. What we have done to mitigate the risk and um, potential infections, COVID infections and other things is that we modify our clinic flow so that um, there's less people around, um, you know, you're not scheduling overlapping of people. So we modify our workflow and our clinic flow in order to accommodate and still be able to see patients. Um, I have to say that, you know, in, in my world, it's slightly different than other clinical trials world where you know, if you're in a hypertensive trial, one of the common conditions, it's a little bit more lenient where, okay, well, if you can't make it this time, let's try the next time. I think ours is a little bit unique in that they need to come in to get their medication and to get their therapy. So we were able to fortunately modify our workflow in order to accommodate that. What we do see in the landscape of clinical trials and the changes in clinical trials is that now, you know, uh, there, there's, there's this huge catalyst and, and just exponential growth of the idea of decentralizations of clinical trials and some of the methodologies surrounding it. It has been substantially amplified even in the pediatric population as well. So, the, so that's, that's a substantial change from in the past where you have to come into clinic to, to get your procedures done and lab work done. Um, so now patients are getting infusion at home, even pediatric patients, and they're getting procedure done and visits done at home. Um, and what I do is I do telemedicine or telehealth. Um, and that has worked out substantially well. I think that um, clinical research with, with the, and the setting of the pandemic kind of shows to sponsors and CROs and, and people who are working in this environment that, look, we, we can decentralize a lot of the things that we, we do in clinical research. Thank you, Han. That's a great, um, that's a great level setting. When you've been doing procedures, um, video, what have those experiences have been like? I, I would imagine that when acutely introduced during the pandemic, it might have been a little bit of chaos. But do you feel like there's a, a steady state emerging or are there some key lessons learned for, say, children or caregivers, children of different ages? Um, what, what, what are you seeing in terms of best practices coming out of the last year? And that was uh, aimed at you again, Han, sorry. Oh, yeah, um, thanks. So we have, I can give you one example of a study that we started last year um, toward the end of 2020, um, kind of at the peak of the pandemic or when things were about to be um, urgent and everything sort of shuts down. Um, so we started that study around that time and the study for our site enrolled 43 patients and all of them are pediatrics. I think the oldest one was 19 years of age um, and the youngest one was three years of age. Um, so for this particular study, they do have to come in for screening assessment and such and, and to get their medication. But every six months, they don't have to come back for assessment every six months, but in the interim, we do need to modify their medication. 
Now, if this study was done maybe about five years ago, all of these families would have to fly into our clinic because they, they came from all over the world, I mean, all over the country. Um, so, but with, with the pandemic and careful planning and anticipation, we were able to send home health services and home health nurses to the patient's home to um, take their vital signs, to draw labs, to administer medications, and to monitor for side effects. And on my end, as a PI for this study, uh, I get on the phone, like a FaceTime or Zoom or Google Meets, whatever means that the family would have, and do a FaceTime or a video conferencing with the family and the patient. Um, and Amir and I spoke briefly about this. Um, just, you know, these are pediatric patients, they're in the home setting, and the idea of having a nurse coming in and getting lab drawn and doing these hurtful invasive things to them, of course, is dramatizing, right? But um, because I was able to be there on video and coach them through it, um, they were much more comfortable and relaxed. And the protocol for this particular study was not necessarily simple. The nurse were there the nurses were there at these families' home for a good 12 hours because they have to administer medication and do PK um, pre and post. So you can imagine it's a little bit of invasion into people's private homes, right, where they feel this is their safe space. Um, but because of the telehealth and I was able to get on it and coach them through and the family sees me um, and the kids uh, saw my face, and, um, you know, most of the visits were fairly smooth. And so surprisingly, I had some doubts at first with the telehealth and nurses coming in and, you know, you feel like you're not really in control of it, but in some way it's actually works so much better. The kids are in their home environment. If they need to get a snack, if they need to watch TV, if they need to do homework, they can do all of that in the setting of their own home while participating in this visit that they're, that's fairly intense for them. Um, so surprisingly, um, from my experience, particularly in that study, it was, it was not as um, challenging as I was anticipating. Han, that's a really fascinating experience. Um, do you sense that other pediatricians would go through a similar um, learning and acceptance curve. Do you think that some of their clinical use of telemedicine and other solutions like those during the pandemic and how they were delivering care, will that help other pediatricians move perhaps a little e more easily along this change in acceptance curve? I think so. I think um, for the most part, um, pediatricians are touchy-feely physicians, right? So they, they want to talk to the kids and hug the kids. and But in the setting of the pandemic, of course, that's not necessarily feasible. Um, and so transition to home uh, telehealth or telemedicine is a little bit challenging for pediatrician, as I can speak on behalf of. Um, but, you know, we, we find that... Um, it's not that bad. Um, I so I am an MDA director at University of Alabama, and and we have fairly complicated and and kids with chronic medical conditions, and we're able to navigate and coordinate a lot of their care through telemedicine. So I think there has been always resistance and and hesitations with technology and changes in the technology, but I think the the pandemic and everything else sort of catapult things to the next level. And now we're a little bit more open-minded with technologies than before. That's great to hear. Thank you, Han. Amir Lahav, um, thinking about the different technology and, and Han had just hinted at some, e-consent up front, video in between, or using for visits, maybe wearables and apps. Amir, how are you thinking about best practices related to technology in decentralized trials involving kids? I'm glad you asked, <laughs> Craig. Um, well, I'm really excited that Han, my friend, uh, joined this uh, uh, clubhouse today. But the real reason I brought her is because I needed someone that I will disagree with. 
So, <laughs> um, the, <laughs> I, I do want to, to um, before I, I talk about the technology, it's actually related to the technology. Uh, Han mentioned how uh, she was able to hop on the telemedicine call while the child was in the presumably safe, familiar environment at home when the a stranger nurse came in to, to draw blood. Uh, and when Han was on the phone, uh, uh, not on the phone, on the telemedicine, the child recognized her and, and she has a calming voice too. And, and that worked out very well. But there is one big assumption here that we're making that is not always the case. And, uh, you know, the, um, in a lot of the clinical trials that are done in children, the primary investigators, the PI, is not necessarily the primary care physician. Many times, it's not the case. Uh, in fact, it goes, it takes us back to the, the consent process. A lot of time when the children are like under 12 years of age, they are not even part of the consent form. They, they may not even be in the office with the parent when the doctor uh, tells them about the study. So they might have heard about the study from their pediatrician, that there is a famous doctor, um, uh, Dr. Brown at Emory, who is doing research, uh, uh, who is doing a, a clinical trial now uh, with, with the pharma company, um, and, and they are referred to that trial. Nobody knows Dr. Brown before. The child never met Dr. Brown before. During the consent form, um, it was only the parents there because the approach is that we just need to talk to whoever signs. And this is where, and in that case, if Dr. Brown would now hop on the telemedicine call, it wouldn't be actually any calming effect or any help or any, it would not have any advantage of that stranger nurse that came uh, to the home and, uh, environment. So it takes us very nicely back to the, to the e-consent. You know, decentralized trials have e-consent almost by, by default or should have. And whoever think about e-consent as simply PDF in the paper version, uh, is probably missing an opportunity here. It defeats the purpose. The, the, the beauty of e-consent is that you deal, you, you have the opportunity to, to um, uh, uh, present uh, materials in a more friendly way using videos and graphics because everything is digital. And with the technology today and, and the fact that every high school can go and do some animated, high school kid can do animated uh, uh, videos very, very friendly with the drag and drop uh, software. I would like to be in a situation if my child ever had to go through a clinical trial, I'll sit in the doctor's office, I'll get the consent for maybe, uh, um, uh, instead, I'm sorry, instead of sitting in the doctor's office, I'll get the consent from uh, via email, there will be videos, not just to talk to me, explain me about the study, but something that I can show my my son or my daughter, how is it being done? It will definitely uh, introduce it in a more friendly uh, uh, in a way, in a child-friendly. A lot of the consent forms are written in an R-rated version and not the PG version. And we, knew, we do need to child-proof them because if we want to really view this as a whole family experience, we do need to put the patient uh, in, in the front. We call it patient-facing material, not parents-facing material. So uh, there are a lot of companies out there that are doing an amazing job uh, uh, creating mobile applications and, and digital um, materials that, that could present an MRI procedure or a muscle biopsy procedure or even blood drawing procedure in, in a much more relatable way to the kids. So then when the procedure comes, uh, they are not uh, uh, too scared and they know what they are getting uh, into. Um, so that was my, my, um, my way to comment about that, that telemedicine. But Craig, you also mentioned other things like wearable devices. Uh, you know, that's something that even though I'm a big believer in wearable devices, we also need to be very mindful 
that these might be ch children with some sort of a disability. They have already a lot of reasons to be embarrassed about their appearance. We don't want to add something, another layer that, that could embarrass them in school. If the sensor is clunky or too visible or not, you know, not, not doesn't look very friendly, uh, uh, you know, we don't want to put them in, in that situation. So when we design those equip pieces of equipment, when we think about, we, we, not about how we get the data, but also what the child has to go through in order uh, to get the data and the threshold should be much higher. Before we ask children to do something, we need to be very absolutely sure that this is necessary and, and, and justify. Um, and uh, and that, that, that's just, it's, it's a philosophical uh, um, uh, and mindset approach that I think we should all uh, change the way we write protocols uh, and review protocols when, when we deal with pediatric trial. I'm sure the audience will have a lot more to talk about it and, and maybe resonate or disagree with me, but that was my, um, my two cents, long two cents on, on this topic. Now, Amir, you know, they're, um, it's not quite as uh, binary as a kid versus an adult. Uh, our, our children um, have different experiences and preferences and different uh, things that will resonate with them at different points in their uh, childhood and adolescence. The comic book interface that might have worked for my son at one age is just not going to click at another age. So when you're thinking about these interfaces, how much do they have to evolve or be tailored for different age compartments? Um, and if you're running a study that's going to straddle many years, how much do the interfaces have to evolve and mature with the with the child? That's that's a really really good question, uh, uh, Craig. Because there are, you know, uh, we we define uh, children eighteen and under, and the range is huge. So at two or three or five years old, uh, in the pre-reading phase, uh, is going to need different uh, approach than than a 12 year old or even a 16 year old um, we we do need to create materials that that are uh, are um, age appropriate and in some longitudinal studies we may need to change uh, a, a, our our approach as the child uh, grows grows older especially if we follow them up for 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 several years there are several companies out there who have done recently just this past couple of months, amazing job on creating uh, uh, opportunities for children to to understand the procedures that they're going to be going through, like like uh, uh, Lego, uh, the company uh, created uh, an MRI uh, machine where the children can play with and build it before they come to the procedures and in a way to, to help them understand uh, and alleviate stress. Philips has done something very very similar uh there uh, a company company named insulate that is focused on diabetes just uh partner with um, uh, a video game company where they allowed um, uh, kids with diabetes to um, have to unlock different features of the game where they can actually carry their own insulin pump as a as an accessory on their avatar as they are playing the game, ba basically make them make them feel like you know they can also play and, and they 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 are included the, uh, in in their in, in any way instead of that they the fact that they have the disease yes they have the disease they have diabetes but diabetes doesn't have them, which means they still control the situation. They are proud of having that, that insulin pump on them while playing the video game, and they don't feel uh, as if they are um, being um, outside. Uh, the, again, the, there are companies out there that, like Jumo, that are doing an amazing job uh, with age-appropriate materials for, for kids different age that I think we can all be inspired by. And, and I, I, I think pharma must do much more to uh, uh, to make the children experience uh, better 
which will actually result in better retention uh, and, 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 uh, and basically also the image of the pharma company will definitely improve because, you know, family can say, oh, you know, I participated in this, uh, in the Pfizer trial and it was such an amazing experience for our family and our kids. And, and it's, it's from word to mouth. This is, this is especially when in an area where there is a competitive landscape, you do want to make your trial more attractive and, and, more, and more friendly. It's not just about the drug. It's not just about the drug. Thanks so much, Amir. That's going to take us right to the bottom of the hour. If you are just joining us, welcome. This is TGIF DCT, the Decentralized Trials Club here on Clubhouse. Now that we've had um, uh, some time to speak with Amir and Han, we're going to open up the microphone for you, for your questions, your perspectives. Today's topic, if you're just joining, Kids in decentralized trials, we're talking about pediatrics, we're talking about experiences with um, Dr. Han Fan as, as, a, as a principal investigator working in these studies, um, as well as with our friend Amir Lahav, who's a, a leader in the application of digital in clinical trials in general with specialized experience in peds. Uh, this is a great opportunity to discuss how we have to rethink our DCT approaches, not just for little adults, but making sure that the tools and technologies will really work. Uh, so Amir, what, what are your thoughts based on uh, so far this conversation with Han and Amir Lahav, uh, Amir Kalali, sorry, I should uh, hit that way. Yeah, OG, right, you said. So uh, basically, what I would like to, I mean, lots of things, but two I want to pick up on. Uh, one is kind of maybe still talk to our co-hosts a little bit around one is kind of patient recruitment clearly you know having run many trials in pediatric rare disease it's kind of a historically been probably even more difficult than you know your average adult uh, sort of trial and the role of sort of digital to really help us and decentralize is that going to help us really try and uh, you know reach out to patients that need it and secondly kind of the theme around which i think emil lahav was sort of talking about at one point as well which is how do we really leverage the technology that we have to really make the experience much more centered around patients, make it much less scary, really try and help patients kind of want to do this. Because, you know, as all of us, you know, uh, who may have family will think about this, the barriers that we have for, you know, getting patients into trials is even more complicated in pediatric, obviously. So those are the two themes I was thinking about as our two co-hosts were talking. The, uh, the challenge, certainly, of recruitment. Um, Han, I'm curious, do you have any uh, reflection based on what uh, Amir Kalali was just sharing, our OG Amir, in particular thinking about that recruitment challenge? Um, yes, I. Um, for, for me, it's um, focusing on pediatrics and particularly in rare diseases. Um, it's extremely rewarding because you know, you, you get to work with the whole families, you get to work with the kids and, and, and the parents as well. Um, but I think that in terms of recruitment and enrollment, um, they, they, these families are extremely dedicated and they're highly committed. Um, some families, we, um, we have traveling across the country. We actually just enroll a patient from Serbia um, so I think in terms of, in, in my space with pediatric, particularly in rare diseases, um, the commitment is there and the dedication is there. So enrollment for these patients and, and, and these studies are much less challenging for us than um, compared to some of the other um, adult studies. Um, so I, I, I don't have... Um, much to add other than that it's it's been rewarding and and the challenges is not as um, substantial as one one would think with enrollment and recruitment well let's open up uh, to see what some of the perspectives are from uh, friends who've joined us here on the stage first person up our friend Jane miles Jane welcome feel free to come off mute do a little intro if anyone has not met you yet 
what's your perspective today? Good morning, good afternoon. Thanks for letting me ask a question. My name is Jane Miles. I work at CureBase, so I'm going to get to learn from Amir, which is exciting and fun. Thank you, Han. Thank you for all of your insights. I'm always interested that rare disease and oncology PEDS trials are easier to enroll in a terrible situation. Here's my question, though. A few years ago, I was working on an asthma study in pediatrics and um, we were using mobile nurses and what I thought was really interesting and hadn't thought about before we started was that the IRB actually mandated that the same nurse attend each visit for the particular patient so one nurse per patient allocation if that makes sense over the course of the study so I'm curious whether or not either of you have had that experience or how it changed, especially with the supply chain demands during COVID. What a fascinating experience, Jane. And, you know, it's funny, whenever I think about decentralized trials, I always wonder to myself, how do we do this differently from a brick and mortar visit? And I can't think of an IRB dictating that for brick and mortar site visits, it must always be the same study coordinator at each encounter. But that's a very interesting question. Um, Han, you had mentioned um, perhaps using some home health in some trials. Have you seen any expectation from ethics committees or otherwise around continuity with the same staff? Uh, no, this is interesting. Um, this is the first I've heard of, about it. Um, I, I think most of our home health experience um, in the pediatric population um, have been amplified through because of the pandemic. Um, but I, I don't think that I've heard IRB or any ethic committees regulating or mandating that it has to be the same nurse, um, simply because just as you had mentioned, the supply chain um, demands and the shortages of nursing staff. Um, unfortunately, our home health company, the, the one that we work with, um, have a that they have such a high turnover rate of nurses. So a lot of times, some of these patients, unfortunately, do have different nurses at each different visit. The one consistency thing that they know they have is the telehealth visit with either myself or our nurse practitioner. Um, but this is interesting. This is the first I've heard of it. Um, but. It may be a factor of Having done it a few years ago, another element they added in just for extra fun was the request to do as many of the visits as possible within the child's school setting to minimize the time away from school. Now, again, this was asthma, not rare disease. Sure. That, yeah, no, I, um, I, can't, <laughs> uh, I have not heard that. Um, I, for most of our home health visit, as high for for a lot of them is either infusion or they're there to get lab draws, vital signs, and do other procedure like EKG and such. Um, so I, I don't, you know, I don't think those are necessarily conducive to be done and carry out in school. <laughs> I can imagine doing that with 50 kids running around. But that's, that's really interesting that you're, you're getting those feedback from IRB. Now, uh, Jane, that was from pre-pandemic. You were, you were an early adopter in, in using some, uh, some visiting nurse and home health then. Uh, Jane, is that, is that right in terms of the timing for that feedback? Yeah, that's correct. And it was a monoclonal antibody infusion-based therapy. So it wasn't that the infusion would be done in the school setting. It was more that the things that didn't need to be done in clinic be done at school if it was going to mean the child would lose time away from school. Um, and, it, you know, I'm just remembering that it was a very unique set of circumstances. The IRB was totally on board, but they did put those conditions in place. So, uh, I'm sorry to, to jump in. Uh, I think that is the way Amir and Craig uh, uh, are leading the, the Decentralized Child Research Alliance, I think one of the... the the number one principle is offering flexibility. 
So I don't think there is one formula that, that fits all. And uh, when the children are at the age that you can actually ask them, I think that's what we need to do. And if the child prefers that the nurse will come home, I would do it at home. If the child prefers that the nurse will come to the school, if, if, if I can choose, if, if, if we provide that flexibility, I would do that because I know my kids, for example, they would not want to do it at school. They will be extra embarrassed that they, somebody come to the school and, and, and you know, take them out of the class and sort of uh, make them even look even, even more sick or as if their disability is even much more than what, what it's supposed to be, as opposed to if they just call it a day off, nobody knows, you know, and, and they show up at school. So I think asking the, the children at some point, this is really practicing by example, leading by example, patient voice. And we should offer flexibility where, where possible. That's right. Certainly a very consistent theme we hear. Um, OG Amir, you were going to add? Sure, thank you. So I have two comments on what Jane said. One is, you know, having served on RBs and worked with them for many years, uh, I've learned over the years that RBs take the I very seriously, the independence. So, uh, you know, it, it is kind of interesting how you can definitely get idiosyncratic kind of uh, recommendations by one RB member who may or may not be that well informed. You know, and I'm not saying this case was wrong or right, but it, it is part of our system that the you know the RBs uh, you know historically before they all consolidated probably could have been very variable in their feedback depending on just one particular member's you know biases the second thing just to go on what Amir Lahav was saying I think you know thinking back to the dark ages we were all old enough to be in you know uh, the clinical research enterprise did not really consider these factors right it was mainly a, it was basically a research program and there was sort of research objectives being met and whether that was convenient for the patient or the site or whatever really wasn't thought about that much especially you know many times we had people sitting in ivory towers who'd never seen a patient in their whole lives, never been to a site, kind of coming up with these things. So hopefully, kind of uh, as we go forward, we people are beginning to understand this really not acceptable anymore. And so that's my thoughts about kind of what Jane's bringing up. Amir, I, I didn't grow up in the dark ages. I'm, I'm, I'm a child of the Enlightenment. I have no <laughs> idea of what era you speak. Um, now, this is some great perspective. And, and, you know, some of it also bridges together. I was thinking, Jane, how I've heard a number of study teams talk about how they include the investigator via video during that home visit, as Han was describing earlier. And so perhaps that provides that little bit of additional continuity, given that for many, the visiting nurse resources are a resource that's very limited today. Um, and having that continuity could be a challenge. So it's a great topic to have raised here. Well, let's keep that on the parking lot and see if there are other perspectives that come up over the course of our remaining time and turn over to our friend, Matt Walls. It's good to see you, Matt. Welcome back. Uh, introduce yourself for folks that don't know you. Share your thoughts on today's topic. Hi, Craig. Hi, Amir. Hi, everybody. I'm Matt Walls. I'm the CEO of Trialbee. We're a patient recruitment company. And um, two comments. One, I'm, I'm going to go back to what Amir, the, the guest panelist, said earlier about um, the, the tools to collect, the wearables to collect the data with the pediatrics be friendly enough that they, there's no social anxiety around them. And that really hit home. I remember we had a, a daughter who in middle school went through tissue expansion balloon procedure in her scalp. And if you don't know what that is, imagine a balloon between your 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 skin and your your skull and it just grows a little bit each day and ends up looking like a football sitting underneath your skin it can really look disfiguring and not that that was a clinical trial but it, it reminded me how important it is for the kids and their social aspects um, to consider that so I, I appreciated that view from amir my um my one i guess input on the discussion and would be interested to hear others thoughts we do pediatric recruitment and we've noticed that in those situations, um, depending on the age of the child, of course, that the parents or caregivers are have a lot of anxiety about their child getting into the trial. I think there's normal anxiety for a normal person going into a clinical trial, and depending on need, can they get in? But when it's their 
their child they're caring for, it seems to be greater. And those are the trials where we get more comments. Says, you know, do you know if I, my child's going to be accepted? Or there's a lot of anxiety there. So one of the things I would, I would add to think about is um, during that recruitment and enrollment process, making sure there's a fast focus on turnaround times um, and, and for all the steps in the recruitment and enrollment process to help with that anxiety. Because I'm sure the, the children feel that too. And then secondly, to the, the comment about um, not knowing the physician, I think that's huge during recruitment into decentralized or a hybrid trial where there's not a relationship between the physician and the child. And any, any use of materials like video for screening purposes instead of just a phone call. Um, I've seen videos where there's a message from the PI that can be watched that's uh, a friendly message about the study that kind of warms up what the child is, is getting into. I think those things are really helpful. And I thought that was good insight too. So just thought I'd share that. Great share, yeah. Matt. And um, it's such an inversion in terms of what we're so used to thinking when it comes to people's anxiety and clinical trial participation, where the, the story is, uh, um, the anxiety about whether they'll get in, not whether a little less maybe as we see with adult trials. Um, that's fascinating. Amir Lahav, uh, you had a perspective there? Yes, thank you. Um, I, I appreciate that, Matt, uh, very much your, your comment. And uh, I had a chance to, to talk a little bit about it with Lauren Sunshine when you still had her. Uh, <laughs> a few months ago in, in, in New York. Uh, but, but, you know, the, the, the issue here is, is uh, a whole family experience because I find it very a lot that the parents themselves are sometimes more stressful and more stressed out than the children. And the children, uh, even if they actually didn't, uh, were not concerned about the procedures that is coming up, now that they, uh, could smell the fear in the eyes of their, their mother or father. The kids are just mirror, basically. And, and we, as the adult, are actually the one who could cause more uh, anxiety than, than anyone else. Which, which brings the point that, that, again, when the doctors, when the PIs talk to the parents about it, they need to talk to them in a different way. Because I know that uh, uh, and I hope a lot of parents will agree with me that a lot of things that I would be willing to do for myself if I had, if I participate in the clinical trial, when it comes to my children, I would be super 5,000% more protective and ask more questions and, and would, you know, take the responsibility uh, to make the decision is, 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 is very tough. I can share with you a quick story. My, you know, I have twins that were born prematurely when my son uh, uh, had to get circumcised. I talked to, I talked to the, the pediatrician uh, and, and I was concerned about my son because he was so little to begin with. Uh, and I, I asked, remember asking the pediatrician, is it, is it going to be extra painful, the circumcision for him now because he is, is pr premature? And the pediatrician said, uh, he was a neonatologist, but she said, you know, Amir, I'm, I'm Jewish too. I actually got circumcised. Uh, I don't remember if it was painful in my case, but I can tell you I couldn't speak or walk for a year after. And, and even though it was just a joke, it really made uh, uh, me uh, laugh. And, and it, was, it was sort of uh, a nice way to hear basically saying, Amir, cut the bullshit. I mean, it's just a circumcision. But he was able to, to package it in a, such a, uh, um, with, with humor that, that I think made, made a difference. Now, this is just a simple procedure. It's not a clinical trial. But I do think that uh, in the same way we need to talk to parents, uh, we need to talk to parents differently about clinical trials than we would talk to them as adult participating. Um, oh. that's, that's my point about stress. Thanks, Amir. Uh, we've got about 12 min 11 minutes left. I want to make sure we get through all of our uh, guests that are on the stage right now. I'd love to actually 
jump over to um, Renee Beaumont, if, if folks will indulge me, if only because her LinkedIn job title lists herself as the Secret Agent Society Program Developer, and we have not had anybody with a title involving a Secret Agent Society before. Renee, come off mute, introduce yourself, share your perspective on today's topic. Ah, Renee found the uh, drop instead of the unmute button, which sadly are right next to one another. We well, will get back to her. It's the secret agent society. She has to go under the radar. It's, it's, you shouldn't have exposed her, Craig. Uh, she is burned. Clearly. She is burned. She's burnt. Denise, welcome. Please come off mute. Uh, Denise Haas, introduce yourself for our audience. Hi. Uh, maybe I'll channel Renee's uh, comments. Um, I'm Denise. I work at a large institution in oncology research. I also am a parent of a young woman with a rare disease that was diagnosed late in her life. Uh, she carried an AS, uh, autism diagnosis for 20 years. So I wanted to make a quick comment as far as uh, Jane's uh, uh, comment about the IRB saying that any appointments that take away from school uh, are required to be done at school. Isn't that another way of saying that all study procedures should be done after school? <laughs> Just saying. Um, and then as far as uh, Amir's comments about, you know, uh, uh, consenting the child and making sure they understand. Most institutions that are running clinical trials, and especially in pediatrics, have assent forms and two sets, at least two sets of assent forms. One for a child between probably about seven and 12, another between 12 and 18. And so that whole f uh, formalized process with the IRB is, there's a lot of details to that. So. Um, I think the other Amir was talking about how, you know, there are certain people with certain biases, but they do feel strongly about protecting that patient. Um, and I think people should feel sort of confident that they have these review boards to protect these, these human subjects. Um, and also I have seen companies really target children. They have little backpacks for whatever device that, uh, that was being used. Um, there, there is a lot of work on, on really targeting that child and making them comfortable. I also want to say that I'm very, very supportive of decentralized trials. And I have a question for Dr. Fan. Um, you know, the, the kids getting treatment at home, which is great in their natural environment, which I think is extremely important. The kids doesn't have, you know, is not as anxious. How do you make sure you're catching all the adverse events? like a rash, the rash that a parent might not report because they think it's from something else, but it might be something pretty serious, right? How do you make sure they're reporting in about the real serious stuff? So that's my question. Thank you. Sure, thanks. Thanks for the question. I, I think that's completely um, relevant and I, I always, whenever I get on telehealth with these families, I always, you know, can you turn around and lift up your shirt? And, you know, I, I literally ask many questions from A to Z. And my go-to line is always, you know, you need to let us know if anything changes at all, even if it's one small bump, if it's a bruise, if it's anything that you would typically see in your child. Um, you need to let me know and let me determine if that is something that I need to worry about. But you're absolutely right. When when you do see them on video conferencing or telehealth visit, it's not, um, it, it can't completely replace what you see in person. But I think that um, the technology is out there and you can, you can do quite a bit of things with it. Um, I can do some assessments, like functional assessments and strength assessments over video conferencing. So there, there's quite a bit of advantage. But yes, I always worry about those AEs that are not necessarily captured. Um, but I think it's the same if they're in clinic and you're, ask, you're asking them anything changed since the last time you were here. And if it happened to be a month ago and they haven't seen you in three months, they may not remember. So True. I think it's it's always 
there's always that fear. Um, so I always give them a blanketed statement to say anything, any changes at all, any changes in medication, big or small, even cough drops or, you know, vitamins, you have to let me know. Thank you, Han. Uh, Denise, is it okay if we um, move on to Absolutely. Renee? Thanks so much. And I would just add there that um, the idea that those periodic video visits coupled with other digital tools that allow more continuous information to be shared can hopefully fill a lot of the temporal gaps around reporting of safety events that used to just be periodic when a patient came into the clinic, but by adding in mobile applications and other tools, sensors, wearables, hopefully we can have even greater confidence there. Now, Renee, I am so sorry that you found the button next to the unmute. Let's give this another try. Welcome to TGIFDCT. Thanks so much, Craig. Really appreciate it. Yeah, I had to go undercover for a bit, but I'm back. So uh, we're all good. Um, I, I wanted to thank everyone. This is a really brilliant conversation and, and related to both what Denise and Amir shared, you know, the, the importance of patient-centric approaches from consenting to the user experience. And I guess, you know, also building off what Denise said, I'd love to hear thoughts from the group around, you know, I work in mental health. And Secret Agent Society is a video gaming-based therapy program for 8 to 12-year-olds, originally on the autism spectrum, and now we've also shown great outcomes for ADHD and anxiety. I think one of the things is when we're teaching kids skills and asking them to face their fears and deal with uncomfortable situations, then there can be this increased risk of distress. And, you know, depending on the clinical population and what the, the target mental health outcomes are, we could be dealing with suicidality um, as, as a byproduct. And I think, you know, we do want to be more accessible and, and we want to provide opportunities for people to connect with care as needed. But sometimes, you know, I do feel that because we have this video gaming-based therapy program and all these supports, this is sort of expectation around on-demand care. And of course, you know, this is distributed around the world. So there isn't a 24 seven component. And whilst there is as part of the consenting process for research trials, you know, expectation management and clear guidelines around reaching out to, to who the local professionals might be in the instance of a critical event. I think that's something we need to be really mindful around. And, and so I'd love to hear anyone's thoughts around in that critical incident space and management of that. As I said, I'm in mental health, but I'm sure it applies to the physical health and wellbeing space as well like what can we do to, to make sure we're setting realistic expectations and not setting up you know expectations that we can be on call 24 7 um, and and how to manage that so that we don't get a bad reputation if there is a critical incident that isn't managed in an optimal way uh, Amir Lahav any uh, comment following on Renee's share well, thank you, Renee. And Renee is an example of someone who's really dedicating her life to uh, to mental health of children in the most creative way that I've seen, uh, and and really uh, uh, leading by example here because uh, taking the, the 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 idea of gamification even further because it's not just about showing the video a video animated video to the kids. Here is what you might experience during an MRI procedure. But the way Renee is approaching that, which is the way I think we should all do, is having the kids play a video game where they are taking the role of the MRI technician and they are running the procedure on another kid throughout the game. It's not a passive participation, it's active. While the child is able to do it psychologically to another child, they actually experience it in a much better way and they would understand that uh, uh, be, be more mentally prepared. We don't want to have kids uh, uh, participate in a trial, have the drug benefit the, trick, the, the kids in one aspect of life, while the entire trial, their mental health and their quality of life is being uh, um, compromised because whoever planned that clinical trial protocol is putting too much stress on them. So I know we have two minutes to go. I will just say one thing. When you translate the protocol to Arabic and German and Italian and Spanish, don't forget to also translate it to childish. 
Thank you. Great one. Thank you so much, Amir. That was a good one. That's a, that's a good one for Twitter for anyone who's listening. Al Pacino, can I give you 30 seconds before we have to wrap up? I'm sorry we ran long on time. Not a problem. Not a problem. So uh, real quick, uh, I know that Fan is a neurologist. So my interest is modernizing the way we use diagnostic instruments via telemedicine or direct-to-patient instruments. Just to let you know that uh, there's a working, we're working with universities to do uh, uh, diagnostic instruments for pediatrics. Like one of the most popular ones that we just released was the NIH Stroke Scale Pediatrics, which you'll probably hear more. And then uh, for Rene, is, uh, as a last comment, the direct-to-patient instruments for um, like the self-managed self-test that came from out, out of the University of Germany. They're coming down the pipeline. Thanks so much, Al. And thank you so much to uh, Han, who I, I never had the chance to meet before. This is really a pleasure. You brought such great perspective to this <clears> conversation. <throat> and I'm grateful to you, Amir Lahav, for, uh, for setting up this conversation. Uh, it's a great example of our community bringing forward some great topics. Now, OG Amir, I think, might have to stick. Uh, I don't know, Amir. You tell me. All I know is uh, this is a uh, topic of great interest that we obviously could have gone for hours more. Maybe we can repeat it in the future. And really very grateful to both our co-hosts for making it such an interesting and also those who came up on stage. Thank you very much. And I hope everyone has a great weekend. Stay tuned next week. We have Richard Young from Viva, Mayanka Nan from GSK talking about data integration in Decentralized. Check out the calendar in the Decentralized Trials page here in the app. You'll find uh, links for all of the uh, upcoming sessions that we have. Make sure you follow on LinkedIn, Twitter, all these fabulous people you've heard from today and others in the room. Thanks everybody for joining today.